Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you in Christ. It is a joy for me and my family to be back here with all of you this morning. Uh, We have enjoyed our time at Faith Bible Church South County, worshiping with the saints there. But we definitely miss Cornerstone. And we look forward to uh, December 4th when we'll be back uh, for the long haul. Um, so, uh, grace and peace again. Thank you so much for your, your love, prayers, and support. I, I truly sense um, and empowered by your prayers. God is faithful to answer them, so please continue to pray. It is my joy this morning to uh, uh, serve you, hopefully serve you well, uh, with uh, the ministry of the Word. Last time I was here, about a month ago, they asked me to preach from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and that was uh, a wonderful study in the scriptures. Well, this morning, the leaders have asked me to uh, preach from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have your iPhones, or iPads, or the next 21st century, definitely, if you have Android phones, or or the HP discontinued tablets, tablets, uh, uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, if you will stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Please be seated. Well, if you remember a month ago, we did a brief look, study at the background of this letter it is written by an anonymous writer. Most likely, it was not written by the Apostle Paul. Some say it was written by Apollos. But we know definitely that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is in the canon of Scripture. It is a great epistle written to Jewish believers who are on the verge of caving in to persecution, who are being tempted to compromise their faith in Jesus as their Lord, Savior, Redeemer. And it was written to them to highlight this one central truth, the superiority of Jesus to the Old Testament. Jesus is a superior revelation. He is superior than the angels. He is greater than the law greater than the sacrifices. And one 
major theme is that he is the great high priest. His ministry as the high priest is far and above greater than the priesthood of, the, of Aaron and also the mysterious priesthood of Melchizedek. Jesus is the great, the superior high priest. Today's text, verses 19 through 25, uh, asks this question and a- or answers this question. How are we to live in view of our great high priest? Because as Christians, you and I, we have such a great high priest in Jesus Christ who is, who far and away surpasses the law and the sacrifices. In view of this amazing grace given to us in him, how are we to conduct ourselves as believers? That phrase, let us, is found 14 times in this book. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, but we know he's a humble man. He includes himself in all the commands. He's not sitting high and lofty, pointing down at the readers. No, he includes himself as a fellow runner in the race of faith. And he exhorts them 14 times, let us, let us, let us. We find three of those commands in these six verses, 19 through 25. We find three central priorities for the Christian in this text. Three central priorities, three commands for every follower of Jesus Christ. Now, intermingled with those three commands, uh, the writer of Hebrews provides for us seven motivations that fuel us, that drive us, that compel us, that empower us to keep these commands. Three commands, but seven motivations. I mean, just that number differential lo- difference alone tells us uh, that for God, motivation is very important. Uh, in fact, motivation is determinative. Not just what you do, but why you are doing it is God's concern. God, through his prophets, rebuked the Israelites in the Old Testament, for they were doing the right things, like Isaiah 29. With their lips, they praise God, yet their hearts are far away. They're observing the right days. They're meticulous about their diet. They're faithful with all the rituals, all the cleansing, all the sacrifices, but they're motivated by the wrong thing. So God rejected their sacrifices. God turned his ear away from their prayers. God would not uh, receive them because they were driven by the wrong things. And when Jesus, the height of God's revelation came, he had the same condemnation for the Pharisee, Pharisees. Um, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Jesus saw their hearts behind their external righteousness. And he rebuked them. He corrected them. He condemned them. He invited them to get their hearts right with God. And then their external obedience would follow. 
Likewise here, this tells us God is concerned about our hearts. We must be motivated by God and his glory for our religious duties to be pleasing to God. Our obedience stands or falls on this issue, on our motivations. And not only that, if we're motivated by the wrong things, our obedience will be short-lived. It'd be temporary. We will be weekend warriors or just Sunday warriors. We'll be Christians on one day a week or a few hours on Sunday and few hours on Wednesday night or Thursday night. God is concerned about our motivations because these biblical motivations are the fuel that will empower us to obey these joyful commands. Right? These motivations are the wind in our sail. They are the five-hour energy and Red Bull mixed together that strengthen us to fulfill these commands. So we want to look at the three commands, but also the motivations that are given with these commands. Let's jump right into it to verse 22 and look at the first command. Verse 22, let us draw near. Now, I understand that there in your Bibles and my Bible as well, to God is not there. Let us draw near. But I think it goes without saying that the writer is calling us to draw near to God. Remember our last study in Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the idea, the command is God is calling believers to draw near to himself. And I would say this is the first and foremost command in view of our Lord's work as the high priest. This is the central command. This is why Jesus fulfilled the role of the high priest. Yes, he came to suffer and die so that our sins might be forgiven. But as I've said before, it's not just a judicial work. He didn't save us so that we would have our sins forgiven and be saved and go to heaven. He saved us so that we might commune with God. He saved you. He rescued you. He redeemed you for a purpose. And that purpose is greater than any earthly purpose. There's a greater purpose for our salvation. And that is our highest purpose, which is to worship God. To commune with him. To have a living, vibrant, and growing relationship with him. Previous to our salvation, we were separated from God. And this separation from God began with our progenitors, Adam and Eve. They sinned against God. They violated his command. Therefore, God cast them out. He promised, you disobey me, you will die. 
And he wasn't talking about immediate physical death. That is the consequence of sin. But the immediate result is a spiritual death where they will be separated from God. And that's exactly what happened. After they sinned, they were cast off from the Garden of Eden. And Isaiah 59.2 tells us that our iniquities have separated us from God. The reason we are far off, the reason we are God's enemies, we are aliens, strangers, exiles from God, is because of our sins. That is the chasm that Jesus bridged by his death and resurrection. He saved us, and he brought us near that we might worship God and be near him. John 4, 23, hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 1 Peter 2, 9, this is the people that God has created for himself a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions that we might proclaim the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we as a people, we were saved to worship him. We were saved to commune and have a relationship with God. And that is the first command. That is the heart of God. That is God's gracious, loving invitation to every believer. R.C. Sproul was asked this question, what is the big idea of the Christian life? If, if you could summarize the Christian life in one sentence, how would you do it? Now, if that person asked me that question, I might have used a sports illustration. I might, use, I might have you know, talk, talked about a movie or a TV show or about, or about a certain food. That's the extent of my references. But R.C. Sproul is a, is a very smart guy, and he knows multiple languages, and he knows, he's a professor, he knows Latin, and he used these two words to describe the big idea of the Christian life. The, the phrase was Coram Dale. The Christian life is all about Coram Deo. It's, it means literally before the face of God. Right? Before the very presence, the face of God. The Christian life is all about we've been saved and we are brought, we are far away and God has brought us close to his very presence before his very face. And so our whole life Every aspect of our life is lived before God's face. His eyes are upon us 24-7. He hears our prayers. His heart is concerned with our heart. And he beckons us. He exhorts us. And because of the hardness of our hearts, he commands us to draw near to him. That is the big idea of the Christian life that we are to draw near to God every day, every hour, at every opportunity, no matter where we are. Now, that's, this is a scandalous idea. This is an unacceptable idea for a Jewish person living. And even now, for them, you don't go to God whenever you want. That is, that is unheard of. Uh, you go to God 
on a certain day, at a certain hour, at a certain location, after you have done certain things, right? So you have to go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, offer sacrifices, do ritual cleansing on a special day through an intermediary, and you can draw near to God from a distance, right? You can't go to God whenever you want. But that is the privilege given to believers. That is the amazing privilege given to Christians. That no matter what day of the week, we don't have to wait for Sunday. We don't have to wait for Wednesday night care group. We don't have to wait for 5 a.m. Oh, man, I overslept at 6.30. I missed God, right? Or, or it's too late. God, it's too late for me to be seeking, to, seeking God now. I can't go to God. Or no, right? I'm too busy. Or I'm, 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 I've got too many things in my heart. No, w- wherever you are, whatever you, you're doing, we can call on God in Christ. And we are before his face. We could be at home with your kids, early morning with your Bible, driving home after work, sitting around after your meal. I believe it was Susanna Wesley. She had 13 kids. So she's got like eight on us or seven on us. I gotta do my, do my math again, right? Seven or eight on us. And a biographer described how she communed with God. She was at her kitchen table and all her kids are running around her. She put her apron over her head and she would sing to God, right? She would pray. She couldn't leave her kids by themselves in the kitchen, they would kill each other and themselves, right? She has to be there, but she wants to commune with God. She put her apron over her head, close her eyes, sing, praise, worship, commune with God. This is the privilege given to believers. And the writer of Hebrews specifies how we are to draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith in verse 22 with a true heart, with a full assurance. So there is nothing here about external rituals. Nothing about wearing the right clothes, right time, right day, right place. Nothing about reciting the right prayers or doing particular ceremonies. There is nothing here about your posture, your manner, the mode in which you come near to God. With, with the Christian, it's all about the heart. It's all internal. God's concern is not about your clothing, not about your hair, not about some some ceremony. God's concern is with our hearts that we would come to God with a true heart, a sincere, genuine, the the Greek word lethios means without uh, hypocrisy, without an ulterior motive. We come to God with a undivided heart, a true heart, in full assurance of faith. With faith. Faith is central. That's God's main concern. That when we call upon God, we draw near to God, it is with faith. Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is central. Faith is crucial. Faith is essential. Without faith, it is just man-made religion. With faith, we are communing, communing with God of the universe. How can we have this faith, this full assurance of faith? The Greek word, the full, is pleru. It's the idea of bubbling over, overflowing. It's an abundance of faith. You have too much faith. You're, you're overflowing. Uh, your heart's overflowing with it. How can we have this kind of faith? Oftentimes, our faith is so weak. Our, our hearts are so prone to wander. Oftentimes, doubt, anxiety fill our hearts more so than faith. How can we have this full assurance of faith? Romans 10, 17, where does faith come from? Paul said there, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Faith is given to us at our salvation and continually as Christians by the message of the cross. Faith is not produced by us. It is not innate. We don't create faith. We don't manufacture faith. It is an alien faith given to us as a gift by God. Now practically, how is it given to us? It is through hearing the word of Christ. That is why Paul said someone has to preach for them to be saved. Someone has to, be, to, to go or to preach and someone has to send them because unless they go and preach, they will never be saved. People cannot be saved unless they hear the gospel. They must hear it to be saved. Therefore, we must send evangelists. We must send missionaries to preach. And when people hear, faith comes. That is the same for believers. Faith is not something that we, we create with our efforts with our concentration, with our discipline, with our efforts, with our work. We can do a lot of things in our flesh, but we cannot create faith. We cannot grow faith. Faith is a gift given to us through hearing, Romans 10, 17, the word of Christ. Therefore, what are we to do? Read your Bibles. You want to have this you want to go to God, draw near to God, wherever you are, whatever circumstance. And you want to have this overflowing assurance of faith in your heart and an unhypocritical, sincere heart. Read your Bibles and listen for the message of the gospel in the Bible. Hunger and long and thirst right, for, for, the, for, the, for Christ's righteousness. Long for his grace. Long for his mercy. Preach the gospel to yourself. Milton Vincent's book, Gospel Primer, an excellent book teaching us the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, overflowing in your heart where you are proclaiming the gospel to your own heart and growing your faith. Listen to gospel songs. Sing gospel songs. Listen to gospel sermons. Do all of this and what happens? And we hear the word of Christ, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, and the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He gives us faith. 
He gives us assurance. He gives us conviction. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, When we came to you, you heard our words, not as words of men, but as it actually is, the words of God. And our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. When you heard the gospel, you had this great faith. And we knew the Holy Spirit was working in your hearts. That is the grand invitation. To draw near to God. With true hearts, with full assurance of faith. Not just on Sundays. But every day, every opportunity. Call on God. You're before his face. You have his full, undivided attention given to you because of Jesus. That's the first command. And this is, uh, so for God, this is important. For God, this is not a trivial thing. This is why Jesus died. And this is why Jesus suffered and died for us. He delights in his children. As a father delights in his children, God delights in us. Therefore, he surrounds this command with, with incentives, motivations, right? reasons why we are to do this. He gives us three reasons, three motivations before this command in verses 19 and uh, 21, and then two motivations in verse 22. We'll go through them one by one. The first motivation is... Um, we have, verse 19, confidence to enter the holy place, places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Look at that word confidence. We looked at that word in our last study in Hebrews 4.16, 4, 4, um, parousia. It's an attitude of openness, attitude of freedom, boldness, unbridled joy. Right? We are to come to him with this with this liberty, with this joy, effusiveness before him, totally opposite to the high priest. All right, this high priest, according to Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he would go and sacrifice an animal in the holy place. After shedding the blood of this animal, he would wash his body and his garments, and he would enter into the most holy place. But he was entering that holy place with trepidation, with fear, with terror in his heart. Because if there was anything this priest knew as a, as a committed Jew was this, that God was a thrice holy God. Right? That he was a majestic, sovereign, righteous, holy God. And he knew that he was a sinner. And right before entering, he was praying for his own sins recounting all the sins that he had committed so that he might enter in. And his heart was melting within him. Why? Because he knew the story of Isaiah 6. Isaiah entered into the temple, and he saw the glory of Yahweh. He saw the angels sing out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole world is filled with your glory. 
Isaiah saw the holiness of God and he saw his own heart. And what did he say? I am a man of unclean lips. What is he saying? He's got a dirty mouth. No, he understands out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you have a dirty mouth, that means you have a dirty heart. He's pointing to his heart. I am a sinner and I have seen the thrice holy God. And he says, I am undone. I am condemned. I am destroyed. It's not just physical death. It's eternal death because I have seen the holy God as a sinner. I am utterly cast off forever. That truth was in the minds of every believing Jew, doubly so for the high priest who was entering in. Therefore, he was entering in cautiously, filled with with terror in his heart. But that is not how believers enter into God's presence. We don't call on God with fear, with anxiety, with terror with horror that we might be cast away by God because of our sinfulness and his holiness. No, we walk in, dare I say with a swagger, right? Dare I say it? We walk in with confidence, confidently, strutting, strutting, we're walking in with our heads held high. Why? Look at verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Blood of Jesus is a metaphor for his death. We're able to enter in, not because Jesus bought us a ticket. You know, you you go to Disneyland, you're afraid. Can I get in? Let's say you're younger. Can I get in? Your mom says, I bought a ticket for you, right? You walk in. So Jesus bought you a ticket to Disneyland or, or, or Knott's Berry Farm. No, that's not how we gain entrance into heaven before the throne of God, before God's presence. No, it was by his blood, which is he didn't donate a pint of blood for our entrance. No, he gave his life. He poured out his blood. He died on the cross for us so that we might have this entrance. And so... Approaching God with with fear and anxiety, trepidation and terror diminishes the glory of Christ. That's false humility. You think you're humble by approaching God with this this fear and doubt and and self-deprecating demeanor. You think you're honoring Jesus. No, you are lowering what the cross has accomplished. The more you Boldly, confidently, with liberty, you call on God and commune with him. To that degree, your faith is mature and growing. And to that degree, you are exalting the work that Jesus did on the cross. For it is by his blood that we enter, not by the blood of animals. The second incentive is verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, Look, look at verse 20. It's the new and living way. That word new, really the accurate translation is just slaughtered. That's the word in the Greek. Right? Just killed. So we enter by this way, but it's the just killed way, but it's alive, it's living. Through the curtain, but it's not a curtain, that is his flesh. It is 
pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, the risen Lord. We're able to enter heaven, into the presence of God, because there is this lamb who was just slaughtered, Revelation 5, but he is standing, he is risen, he's alive. And it is through his flesh, living body, that we, have, we are able to enter into God's presence. Um, that is what happened when Christ died on the cross, the most holy place in the holy of holies, the most holy place in the holy place. There was a thick curtain, a thick veil that separated these two rooms. And soon as Jesus died, the curtain was torn top to bottom. On the third day, he rose. And it says he entered the holy place. Romans, Hebrews 9, he entered God's throne and through his resurrected body, by him leading us, we are entering into God's presence. The third motivation is found in verse 21. Since we have a great, hot, great priest over the house of God. The Messiah is not just a high priest. He is the great high priest. And he is the priest over the house of God, the whole house of God, meaning all Christians, all believers. This is the motivation. Access to God is not just for super-Christians. It's not just for elders or pastors. It's not just for those who are mature in their faith. It's not just for those who are worship leaders or Bible study leaders. Every single Christian could be a, a, a minute old in the faith. You just became a Christian. You could be a Christian for 50 years. You have equal access to God. See, horizontally, yes, there are mature and immature believers. Right? There are godly and far less godly believers. Right? There is a degree, a spectrum, horizontally, but not vertically. Because Jesus is the great priest over every single Christian. You are a believer today. You have access to God, directly to God through Jesus Christ because he is your great priest, interceding for you, made atonement for you. He is not just the priest, he is the sacrifice and therefore that is the incentive for us to draw near to God. The fourth motivation is found in verse 22. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This sprinkling of blood refers to the Old Testament. It's found numerous times in this uh, animal sacrifices. One of the first times it's found is in Exodus 24:8, when God uh, made his covenant with the nation of Israel. Moses took the blood of the animal that was slaughtered and he sprinkled it on people in Exodus 24:8. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord made you in accordance with all these words. In Leviticus 16, the priest would also sprinkle the blood and the horn of the altar and over the people as well seven times. But this was all external. This had no power to remove sin. Uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. All this did was remind people of their sins 
and their need for a future Messiah, which is Jesus, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, who would be slaughtered once and for all for the forgiveness of sin. This outward sprinkling had no power for the remission of sin. But in verse 22, our hearts were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What Jesus did wasn't external. It wasn't just merely internal. Jesus went to the very source of our sins. The very source of our, he cleansed the source of our sins, which is our hearts. Um, Jeremiah 17, 9, heart is deceitful beyond all things, beyond cure who can understand it. Mark 7, 2022, Jesus was saying, what, what your diet is no concern of God, no longer, uh, because you are not made evil or sinful by what you eat. It's what comes out from your mouth. And what proceeds out of your mouth is from your heart. And out of the heart, he said, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, envy, pride, slander, foolishness. What is wrong with people is their hearts and their hearts are full of sin. It is the source of all sin. That is why when David committed sin with Bathsheba, he didn't say, oh, God, you know, momentary lapse of judgment. You know, I was just having a rough day. It's circumstances. You know, it's Bathsheba's fault. Right? Or I just had a lot of pressure on me right now. That's, it's, it's not me. It's my situation. No, he said, cleanse me with hyssop. Right? Hyssop was a branch that priests would use to cleanse lepers, to pronounce cleansing on lepers. I need cleansing in the innermost being at the place of my heart. Create in me a new heart. My old heart is full of sin. I, I don't need reformation. I need regeneration my heart must be cast away. You must give me a new heart. And this is what Jesus did. He cleansed us from our sins. Now, this is where we need to do some English grammar work because uh, this translation is unfortunate in verse 22. Um, where I always read this is, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, I always thought, wow, okay. To draw near to God, I need to get my heart right. I, I've got so many sinful things in my heart. I can't go to God. You know, I just sinned. I need to wait at least three hours to go to God, right? Three, that's, that's the acceptable amount of time, minimum amount of time you have. You have to pay penance before you can draw near to God, right? I have to feel guilty. I have to do self-penance. I have to despair. I have to have this existential heart crisis for at least three hours before I can draw near to God so that I might have a true, pure heart, heart sprinkled clean. I need to cleanse my heart by reading the Bible and doing some good works, you know, serving in the uh, nursery ministry at Cornerstone, do some good works, then I can draw near to God. That's how I understood it. But the grammar tells us that's, a, that's wrong. The verb sprinkled here is perfect, passive, participle. A perfect verb is once and for all with continuing effects. Once and never repeated again. Once and for all, never to be repeated with continuing effects. Passive is it is done to you. You're not doing it, right? I was hit by David, right? 
I was hit by Jeremy. It was done to me. With our hearts sprinkled clean. No, the better translation is having had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our hearts are made clean once and for all, and it was done to us. And when did this happen? It happened when we trusted in Christ. When we placed our faith in Jesus. When we repented of our sins and confessed Jesus as Lord, immediately to the Spirit, He cleansed our hearts. He purified our hearts. He gave us a true heart, a new heart. Uh, the new covenant promise of Ezekiel 36 came true. He removed our heart of flesh and gave, heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. A new heart that is right before God. And that happens once. So I don't have to uh, uh, go uh, uh, pray the prayer again. I don't have to walk down the aisle again. I don't have to be baptized again. I don't have to raise my hand again to be saved. I don't have to be saved again and again and again to draw near to God. No, I can draw near to God anytime because having had my heart sprinkled once for all, cleansed from an evil conscience. What is this evil conscience? Um, the conscience, MacArthur's definition is, it's the self-judging faculty of man. Conscience is that part of us that exercises judgment for us. The conscience tells us what is right and what is wrong. The conscience makes us feel good when we do what is right according to our conscience, and it makes us feel guilty when we go against it. it makes us um, feel miserable, even lose sleep. I heard a story of a guy who wrote a check to the IRS for $150 in addition to his uh, uh, tax payment. And he wrote a letter. Here is a check for $150 because I've been feeling so guilty I, I couldn't sleep. If I keep having trouble sleeping, I'll send you the rest, right? <laughs> That's what our conscience. So we obey until our conscience will stop bothering us, until we stop feeling guilty. This conscience was given to us by God. The Jews were given the law and the conscience, but the law primarily taught them what was right and wrong and the consequences, and all Gentiles were given the conscience in their hearts. So no one is without excuse. The conscience does three things. The first thing it does is tells us what is right and wrong. Second, the conscience, when it's working well, tells us we deserve to be punished for the wrongs that we have done. It tells us we deserve punishment. So you know when your child is maturing, when they have sinned in a great way and they volunteer for punishment. I don't deserve dessert today. I don't deserve to play outside. I don't deserve this, this gift because I've been so bad. You know your child has no heart when your child just sins blatantly and doesn't want any discipline, any, any uh, time out, any punishment whatsoever. And if that child is over 10, you start being very afraid, right? This child is heartless. And the conscience tells us what is right and wrong and tells us we deserve the consequences. And that's the 
evil conscience because that keeps us from drawing near to God. See, as non-Christians, sin separated us from God. As Christians, sin and guilt separates us from God <clears throat> because our conscience says, oh, you, you messed up. You blew it. You sinned. <clears throat> You're a hypocrite. How can you read the Bible? How can you go to church? How can you show your face at care group? How can you dare pray? You have no heart, no conscience. You must somehow pay and atone for these sins before you can draw near to God. And that's the guilty, weak conscience that is evil. The clear conscience, the good conscience, does the third thing. The good conscience accepts the verdict of the cross. The good conscience right, acknowledges I'm a great sinner. Acknowledges because I'm a great sinner, I deserve eternal punishment in hell where God will never show me an ounce of pity or mercy. I deserve eternal wrath from God where he will be unrelenting of his punishment upon me and there will be no amount of compassion or mercy from God. That's what I deserve. But the, the, the gospel-informed conscience goes the third step and by faith accepts the verdict of the cross and says, though I'm a great sinner, Jesus, and though I deserve the utmost punishment, Jesus is a great Savior. Therefore, I am justified. I am righteous. I am accepted by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Therefore, I don't need to slaughter any animals. I don't need to take showers and baths. I don't have to wait till Saturday or Sunday. I don't have to do ceremonies and rituals and lighting of candles. I can go to God even though I just sinned. I can draw near to God and be in his presence and I can have confidence. I can have boldness. I can have liberty. I can have joy because I accept what the, the cross declares to me, that I am righteous by grace through faith alone. John MacArthur said, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is a beautiful picture of deliverance. Conscience condemns us and reminds us of our guilt. But when Jesus died, he re his blood removed our sins and we are cleansed from this evil conscience. Therefore, we do not condemn ourselves anymore. William Romaine uh, a leader in the 18th century in England said, no sin can be crucified either in your heart or in your life unless it is first pardoned in your conscience. If it's not mortified in its guilt in the conscience, your sin will not be subdued of its power. So what MacArthur and Romain are saying is our conscience must be informed by the message of the cross. We must know, yes, right and wrong. Right? We, we are not to violate our conscience, catalyze or make our conscience callous. We want a sensitive conscience. And we want to accept the consequences of our sins. 
horizontally, but not vertically. If you spit and you get a ticket, you say, thank you, officer. I need this to, to work on my uh, driving on the speed limit. Right? I need to learn from this by this consequence horizontally, but vertically, we accept the third step, which is the verdict, the pronouncement of the gospel, which is righteous, not guilty, adopted, justified. Therefore, in our consciences, that guilt is killed. And what does that do? It enables us to commune with God. You see, our conscience led astray, separates us from God, but when it's informed by the gospel, it draws us near, which is the purpose of our salvation. That's the, those are the five motivations for drawing near. These are the five reasons why God calls us. The blood of Jesus, the new and living way through the body of Jesus, great high priest of every believer. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And then the fifth one, verse 22, our bodies are washed with pure water. And this is not baptism. It's not, you know, he's talking about internal, the heart, not outward body. He's talking about Titus 3, 5, the washing of regeneration, spirit baptism, right? Our inner man, we have been washed with pure water, which is, which is the Holy Spirit. Washing and regeneration, renewing the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. We have been made clean, therefore we are to draw near to him. That's the first command. Second command, shorter. Not all of, all of them are this long. Second command is found in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. The first one is vertical with God. Second one is internal with ourselves and with our confession. Hold fast is this idea of, of keeping in possession, keeping in mind, continuing to believe, grasping tightly, not letting go. The exhortation is for believers who are tempted to go back to the law and to the sacrifices. Because yes, experientially, it might make you feel like you have more faith. When you're surrounded by a big building, when you have all this just ceremony and rituals and activity going on, you might feel more spiritual. The writer is saying, no, that is not spiritual. That is empty religion. Hold fast to your confession. And what is this confession? Hebrews uh, 3.1, consider Jesus the high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4.14, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The confession <coughs> of Christians is that Jesus is our high priest. That he is the pre high priest who is an intermediary for us, for us to approach God and draw near to God and be with God. And he also is the sacrifice that makes this possible and that he is sufficient. Jesus is all I need. Therefore, I don't need religious duty, ceremony, rituals. I don't need personal penance, right? To make myself acceptable to God. No, Jesus is all I need. And that's our confession. He calls them to hold fast without wavering. How do we do this? 
without bending, without giving way, without moving an inch. Right? I mean, there are secondary levels of doctrine. There are tertiary doctrines. There are truths that there are interpretive issues. There are things that are debatable within Christianity. We don't live and die for these, these truths. We don't have a complete monopoly of truth. So we can exercise charity with people who have different opinions or convictions on these points of doctrine. But on the issue of the sufficiency of Jesus as our high priest, without wavering, here I stand, I can do no other. We stand and die on this truth without wavering. And the incentive is found in the last phrase, for he who promised is faithful. Because Jesus is faithful. He is faithful to you, to strengthen you, to uphold you, to care for you. 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Because of who Jesus is, hold fast. And then the final one, we got to get here with our remaining time. The first one, again, is vertical with God, drawing near to God. Second is with your own confession, internal. Third is horizontal with fellow believers, fellow Christians. It's the great triad found throughout the New Testament, faith, hope, and love. Draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Hold fast to your confession of your hope. Third is stir one another to love and good works. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the, most, is the greatest, the most important. Faith and hope are temporary, right? When we die or Jesus comes back, we're in heaven. We don't need faith because we'll see him. We'll touch him. We'll, we'll worship him face to face. We don't need faith in heaven. It'll be over. We don't need hope, assurance of future because it'll be reality. But even in heaven, there will be love. Love for God and love for one another. That's why Paul said, greatest of these is love. And so the third exhortation, the third command is related horizontally to one another to love one another. And that informs us on the command that we are to obey when we gather here. Why are we gathered here? Yes, we are to worship God, but you can do that yourself. You can draw near to God by yourself. You don't need other Christians. Right? Holding fast to your confession, you can do that by yourself. You don't need another Christian to hold fast to your confession. But the third command is possible only with fellow believers. It's gathering together with fellow Christians, and that is the purpose here. Right? Every Christian here is responsible to obey this command. Every Christian. We, we're not to be passive. We're to be engaged. We are to understand our responsibility, our duty before God in view of this command to one another. Everyone is working in the church. Someone has asked me, how has it been um, visiting Faith Bible Church all these weeks? And I, I've been telling them, after this week's study, I had to repent. After Hebrews 10, 24, 25, I had to confess and repent. Because I've been going as very passively. I've been going as an attendee. And last Sunday, I was sitting in service, and the associate pastor, Matt Cott, was preaching, and he was sweating. I, I could see his sweat. He told a joke. People didn't laugh, right? He was preaching his heart out, 
And it was, it was a little difficult. And I'm, I was thinking, wow, man, it's so easy just listening, right? And so much harder preaching, right? And I was thankful that I had that time of rest where I could just leisurely go to church, sit down, talk to a few people, and come right home, right? And I read verse 24, and I realized I was wrong. Every believer is called to ministry every time we gather. But the command is not what you do when you're gathered. The command is you need to prepare for that gathering. Like, believe it or not, I prepared the sermon. <laughs> believe it or not, I spent hours preparing for this message. It's not just extemporaneous. I'm not like smart or like I have a, someone feeding me ideas here. I prepared for, if I didn't prepare, it would be a long Sunday service here at Cornerstone. I prepared. That's why I believe, to some degree, God will judge. It's been an effective uh, 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 sermon. Likewise, God calls you to prepare before you gather. And what is that? Consider. That is the command. Let us consider. Kata noel. Noel is think. Right? Give attention. Examine. Consider. But kata is intensive. It intensifies that verb. Right? It adds to it. So we are to give increased attention, increased examination to this purpose. What is it? To stir up one another to love and good works. To stir up. The, the word, the literal word is agitate, right? To provoke. It's a negative word used in the Bible in a negative way except here. So you have people that, that agitate you, right? Provoke you, right? Um, our children say that a lot. She provoked me, he provoked me, right? So we provoke each other. Here it's in the positive sense, in this context. We are to stir up one another's loving good works. And what is that idea? It's the idea of a, you want to you paint your room, and you get that paint can, and you start painting, and it's not the color that, uh, that's described uh, on the can, on the description. So you take it back to, the, uh, to Home Depot and you start complaining. You start getting angry. You want to call consumer reports and, and file a report, Better Business Bureau. And they said, oh, before you paint, you have to do one thing. And what is it? You have to stir the paint because the paint, the color settles. You have to stir it and agitate it and shake it. And when you do that, the paint will come out beautifully, Right? Likewise, you make coffee with cream and sugar. You drink it, and it doesn't taste good. What do you have to do? You have to stir the coffee. Then it tastes good. Likewise with Christians. Right? Our heart, we lose heart. Right? Our motivations settle to, to, to the bottom. We're not fueled. We, we, we are discouraged, we are frustrated in loving others and good works. It's hard loving one another. It's hard doing good work. And we Christians know, right? We Christians know how hard it is because we're the only ones in the world that are engaged in it. All the good work of this world, like Philip Morris with their campaign to stop underage smoking, they spend like $25 million dollars doing it, and they spend $100 million advertising the fact that they're doing it, and we know what's behind their campaign. It's self-promotion. Everything done in the world is for themselves. We are the one, only ones, as Christians, we're saved already. We don't get more saved. We don't get more of heaven by doing love and good works. 
We're doing it out of voluntary joy. And yet that is why all the more it is difficult because we give and give and give. And so we run out. We struggle. We lose heart. So knowing that when we come together, we need to consider one another before we are there to how we can stir them up, motivate them, encourage them, inspire them to love one another all the more and to abound in good works, knowing that in the Lord our labor is never in vain. All the while, not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. There are some who stop. Right? That is the, the foremost way you withhold love from fellow Christians, by not showing up, right? not meeting one another. Right? Facebook is not fellowship. Right? Email is not fellowship. Phone calls, don't do it. We are to meet together. And you withhold your love. You show hatred by not attending gatherings, Christian gatherings, whether it's on Sundays or during the week. Not some believers thought, I, I draw near to God, I have my confession, I'm good, and yet they're disobeying the most important command in, a, in, a, in a, the triad sense where love is the greatest. We have been saved to love one another. We are obligated, we are responsible for one another to stir one another up, to love and good works, encouraging one another, and the motivation is here. All the more as you see the day drawing near. The day, it is that day, the day of Christ's return. I saw this video a few weeks ago. Most of you guys probably didn't see it. If you have, you'll understand me. If you don't, I'm sorry. It's the video of this eight, nine-year-old girl, right? She gets a backpack for a birthday, early birthday present, and it's a Mickey Mouse backpack, I think. She opens it up, how did you know I wanted this DVD? She's such a good girl, good heart. How did you know I wanted this book? Wow, it's a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. How did you know I wanted a Mickey Mouse t-shirt? And the mom's like, I forgot her name, whatever. <laughs> Not important. If you could go anywhere with this, with all your, uh, your backpack, where would you go? And she said, I'd go to Disneyland. And the mom says, we're going to go today. We're going to go to Disneyland. She's like, no. Yes, we are. And she starts crying. She starts bawling because she is so happy. She is rejoicing with tears of joy. And man, I started getting an allergy attack right then. <laughs> you know, whew, the, the, the pollen in the air was very strong. And she was crying tears of joy. The day of Christ is not a day to be feared, it's a day of judgment for Christians. No. On that day. And it's all the more closer now than we first believed. And on that day, I bet I'm gonna, we're all going to have uh, allergy attacks together, right? <laughs> we're going to cry tears of joy. You better believe I'm going just to just weep with joy that Christ has returned. Knowing that certain day is coming, all the more we are to encourage one another. Stir up each other, hold each other up to, to, to continue in this fight to love one another, to love this world, to do good works to one another and do good works to this world because we know that day of incredible joy is just around the corner. So if I were to sum up Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, it's all about draw near, 
hold fast, consider how to stir up one another, all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great invitation, this privilege, this honor to draw near to you. We don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to fill out paperwork. We don't have to promise things and make resolutions. We can just come to you because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience once for all by the cross and our bodies have been washed with pure water. And we thank you for the exhortation to hold fast to this confession without wavering. That we would hold the sufficiency of Christ for our Christian lives and that we would invite us to this intimate relationship with one another this commitment that only Christians have to one another, to stir one another to love and good works, encouraging each other all the more because that joy, that day of joy when all our pain will be gone, all our tears will be wiped away, all that will remain is is beholding your beauty and, and, and everlasting joy with you. Knowing that day is so close, Lord, move our hearts to, to, uh, all the more be about the business of stirring and encouraging one another to love and good works. We thank you for this precious truth. In Jesus' name we pray.